Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block with Ed, Jody and Steve. We will be discussing various political issues and current events through conservative and libertarian lenses. The show is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast, which can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for the Liberty Block. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Jody. This is Ed. Hi, Ed. Hi, Steve. Hi. So before we get into anything really heavy, um, I just wanted to go over some of the latest COVID goings on. I assume everybody's seen that New York Times article, which was reported in a whole bunch of other places saying that I think 90 some percent of coronavirus positives are not really positive. They're not terribly contagious. They have a low viral load or something. That they have such a low viral load that they're absolutely meaningless. Right, right. And that maybe 10% maybe of positives mean absolutely anything. To which uh, one of my favorite writers, Daniel Horowitz, <clears throat> excuse me, on Conservative Review, is like saying, this is what we've given everything up for. Something like 10,000 deaths that can really be attributed. And that's without going into the issue of comorbidities, which is apparently a separate issue of why many of the COVID cases or deaths aren't genuine. So Jody, you're a healthcare correspondent. So any comments? <laughs> okay, well, I like to make sure everybody knows I used to be an RN. Okay, there's that whole once an RN, always an RN. It really doesn't work that way because science moves quickly, but I'll take that anyway. But, you know- Disclaimer I, duly noted. What's that? Disclaimer duly noted, proceed. Thank you. Um, I am married to somebody who's currently licensed. I'll just leave it at that. I don't play one on TV, but anywho. Um, so uh, um, what was I going to say? So I think that that is certainly really good news. And I would champion it as good news, except we all know it's going to be news that's ignored. You know, certainly under a situation like this, finding new information like that is really valuable and really important. The problem is it's going to be buried and ignored and it's not going to steer public policy in a more rational direction. So while it's good news, tragically, I think it's also going to be ignored news. So basically what you're saying is a tree fell in a forest. Yes. Okay, Ed. Well, Here's, here's my thing with that. I mean, I learned a long time ago that statistics are like a bikini. What they <laughs> reveal is interesting, but what they conceal is essential. And while I'm sympathetic to the statistics that are being thrown out in this article and this change from the CDC, which is, I think, the source of it, um, I, I suspect that they confirm what I already believe, but um, they're still statistics. And I think you'd need a real deep dive into the numbers to see exactly what they're saying and what it really means. Um, you know, yes, there's the comorbidities issue and we don't know if COVID is the reason for people dying or if it's the other comorbidities. Um, you know, I, I strongly suspect that it's the comorbidities and that the COVID, the COVID stats have been inflated. Um, but I, I base that as much on anecdotal evidence and seeing, you know, seeing people in the streets. I mean, it, you know, where are all the dead Walmart people? Where are all the dead 
grocery store people. Where, you know, the, if we had a real pandemic, you know, there have been stores that have been open and that have been seeing people for a long time. You know, where are all the dead truck drivers? Where are all the dead gas station attendants? I mean, the, the list, there's a long list of people, of, of professions that have not had any time off and have been interacting with people for months during these lockdowns. And if we genuinely had the kind of pandemic that's being portrayed in the media and portrayed by Democrats, I think we would see a lot more dead people. And I'm glad we don't. Um, but I'm sort of skeptical anytime somebody starts throwing statistical numbers and statistical arguments like that at me. Um, I, I prefer to judge just by my senses and, and we're looking around. I mean, you know, not to get too into statistics and numbers myself, but I think that the 1918 influenza flu killed something like 50 million people worldwide when the, the global population was a fraction of what it is today. Uh, and do we even have a million deaths worldwide? I mean, I know it's only 180,000, I think, in the U.S., if you believe the worst case scenario. Um, it, the numbers that we have don't suggest pandemic. The evidence of my senses don't, doesn't suggest pandemic. It, what I see is, is a power grab by people that, are, that have been looking for anything to justify that power grab for, for, for 40 years, at least. You know, it's starting to get back to the numbers, but when you look at the, the new CDC numbers and they show that, okay, and I think the last I looked, which was just the other day, I believe we were at 160,000. I hope I'm not misremembering, but that's what I thought. But let's just assume it's somewhere along the lines. And it's 6 million, 6 million who've tested positive. And that's only the tests, right? There's a whole bunch of people out there who've probably had it, gotten through it, blah, 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 that they don't even know about. But when you look a little closely into the CDC numbers, and I saw in the CDC, they, they suggest that 60% of American adults have one or more uh, chronic illnesses. So in that thinking, 60% of Americans, adult Americans walking around right now are in that high risk, 94% of morbidity from this virus. But then when you flush that out a little further and you look and you see, well, the thing is those people are at higher higher risk of dying of this virus, which is really showing to be a very low risk virus. That's the part, the flesh out part that they won't tell you. And so people keep wanting to share, oh my gosh, so many people are 95 or 94% chance of dying from this virus. And it's like, well, it's a low risk virus to begin with. Think of how many people, if there's 60% of our, our adults in our nation walking around right now with a chronic illness that makes them at higher risk of this uh, virus, and yet we have 6 million known cases and 160,000 deaths. It's not, it's not as, I'm not saying it's nothing or unimportant, but they never want to bring it down to those lesser scary truths of science. I don't get it. Well, I guess I get it. I, I definitely agree with Ed. I don't believe any statistics. I just like having one that cancels out the other because no, I don't really believe <laughs> any of them. I wanted to discuss on New York City for a minute. I know you people are not lucky enough to live here, but maybe one day as real estate gets to be very cheap 
Um, there's a report of one state senator finally yelling and screaming why restaurants aren't open in New York City since they're open, like he says, right across the border in Long Island. And Manhattan, as far as I can tell, is just dying away. And Queens, where I am, very, very close to the island, apparently de Blasio is saying we may get back to indoor dining, I think he said next June or something. Wow, really? With the vaccine and maybe something about June. And there's just absolutely no rush. And remember, outdoor dining is not gonna work once November passes in any case. So how New York City is withstanding this is unbelievable. And then I saw an article whose headline got me really excited. It said New York City gyms reopen on Wednesday. Wednesday being today. And being out of the gym for almost six months, that was really exciting until I read this story. And it just, I don't know if you had any chance to read it, but it's like the guidelines include 33% capacity, mandatory mask wearing for everybody, even when you're working right. out, presumably, sign-in sheets and health screenings at the door, installation of special air filters, no indoor classes, um, keeping six feet apart almost at all times, signing in and signing information so they can contact trace, cleaning every two hours. Um, you can't use the water fountains. They need special filters in the air, in the air conditioning. And I'm thinking maybe, maybe the big boys who own many different uh, locations have a prayer, but I can't imagine any smaller gym doing it. And how in the world do you stay afloat with 33% capacity in any case? So the headline got me really, really happy until I read the story. I have no interest in going to a gym under those conditions. I think you forgot the most important uh, provision in the, in, the, in the guidelines, and that's that every Gauleiter has to have free healthcare, health uh, gym services. They're not allowed to exclude the Gauleiters. Not allowed like to Nancy. exclude whom? The Gauleiters. Don't you know who a Gauleiter is? No. no. Oh, come on, guys. Those were the, the, the precinct leaders for the Nazis. Ah, okay. This is why I, this is why I listen to this show, because I always learn something. What is it? Oh, Gauleiters. Okay, yeah, I got to look at Yes. Okay. yes. Um, yeah, not only is it only 33% capacity, but as somebody who's been a gym rat most of my life, there's no way you can work out with a mask on. It's just, it's utterly foolish. And it's, it's obviously someone who doesn't know about working out, doesn't understand a gym, and frankly, doesn't care. And I think it's just, it's just to try and trick people in the exact way that Steve was tricked when he read the headline. This is no real change. I don't think big gyms, small gyms, any gyms can survive on that because I don't think people are going to go to the gyms if the rules are enforced the way the, the guidelines and the mandate have been, have been uh, announced. And the expense that they're going to have to go to every two hours cleaning, new filtration, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I see it as totally, totally untenable. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Well, as, again, as someone who's been to gyms most of my life, I don't think that the, the cleaning is all that uh, expensive or difficult. Uh, every gym I've ever attended, there's always uh, either some kind of wipe down sheets or spray bottle with a, with a paper towel. And I mean, and the, the people using the gym are the ones who clean. I mean, nobody wants to get, get germs from the next person. And that was long before there was COVID. So um, it's not so much the, 
the cost, but it's the intrusiveness and the threat of being shut down and fined if, if some gallator comes in and sees somebody without a mask and says, oh, well, we're shutting you down. Uh, I think that's the real, the, the real threat and the real issue. Um, I don't know about your gym, but here, like locker rooms and restrooms must be cleaned and dis disinfected every two hours. Well, I know some of us go to gyms that look like that, and some of us go to gyms where the real jocks go, and trust me, they are not cleaning and disinfected every two hours. I think this was one, call it a tease, just call it a head fake. Um, I was going to look into gyms in Long Island or Connecticut, to be honest, and I have no idea what's open there. What's going on in Jersey? Uh, in Jersey, the, they're opening the gyms as of September 1st, which was earlier, I guess, yesterday, earlier this week. Uh, but again, similar kinds of guidelines. I think it's either 33% capacity or 25% capacity, um, masks, uh, you know, a whole bunch of ridiculous requirements that are going to make it impossible for the customers to want to use the gym or to have any kind of a pleasant experience going there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't want to be only negative. I do want to make, um, I'll get to you in one second, Jody. I do want to mention the positive COVID news. If I am elected mayor of Philadelphia, I can dine indoors in Maryland. And that made me very, very happy to find out. And I also found out that if I'm a very, very wealthy speaker of the house, I can go to a hair salon. So that's actually cheered me up quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Just change parties. What's that? You don't, have to, you don't have to be elected to anything. Just change parties, become a Democrat. Right. Ouch. That's true. So that happened in my state early on, do you recall? Um, Yes, you're beautiful. Chicago, our lovely, this was early on when it, and of course she she comes out with, you know, unapologetically, well, I'm in, I'm in the media, I need to have my hair done. You know, what happened to leadership where we're all in this together? What, what, what is this notion that our leaders, you know, have to look better and be better? You know, what happened to leading by joining us and, you know, we're all going to struggle through this together. Not, wait a minute, I have to have my hair done because I'm on TV. Uh, do you not remember Bill Clinton's uh, $600 haircuts, I believe, on the tarmac while everybody else was stuck, if my memory serves me correctly? Yes, I remember that. I forget the, the stylist, but I do remember that. Yep, that was a big deal. You know, I remember when we read Some Animals Are More Equal Than Others and chuckled. <laughs> but, you know, again, it, it's not the hypocrisy because I don't think that the impositions on our freedoms would be any more tolerable if these elected leaders were suffering just as much as we are. It's not the hypocrisy. It's, it's the total indifference to, to liberty and freedom and what a free society looks like and, and actually is. That's the real issue to me. So for me, and I agree, but for me, there is this um, um, something for me, but not for thee. There's this arrogance, this um, sort of donning themselves kings and queens. That's not who they're supposed to be ever. They're supposed to be one of us. They're not supposed to be the rulers of us. They're not supposed to be kings treated like kings and queens. There's that arrogance of, Oh, I should get it. I should get, you know, the, the, the mayor of Chicago. I should, I, I have to protect my home and my family and I'm not going to apologize for that. Now, 
all you other little people who can't protect your property and your families, you know, you're not my problem. I protect me and I'm not going to apologize for having the power to do that. It's just not supposed to be that way. The arrogance is really disturbing. I don't think it was so blatant that way several decades ago, was it? They don't even pretend to be one of us anymore? Well, it wasn't that bad, but I think that, you know, the culture has shifted and the Democratic Party has shifted. The Democratic Party does not stand for liberty anymore. And they are, they are in your face about what they're going to do to, do to us if they're given power. And there's a segment of our population that's salivating at that. There's a segment of, this, of our population that's part of the mobs that are trying to bring that to come to pass. And then there's another part of our population that includes the three of us that is, I don't even know what the word is. We're, we're, you know, almost demoralized. We're not terrified, but just so shocked at, at the brazenness of what they're trying to do that we almost don't even know how to react. I mean, you know, but, you know, I think that the Democratic Party has shifted and um, it's not. I don't know that they were always like this. This was always implied in, in the things that they advocated, but they're now at the end of the road. They're no longer at the point of what's implied and what they believe. They've, they've accepted all the implicit premises and now they're trying to implement the premises to their fullest. I think the distressing part is that there's so many people who are encouraging it and championing it and sharing it. And you just, it's unfathomable that there are so many people who think it's okay. I, it's bizarre. What do you mean by it, Jody? That it's okay. The, 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 this, this transition from um, our elected officials being, you know, of the people, by the people, and for the people, and now they are so blatantly um, donning themselves as kings and queens and worry, worthy of, you know, all that that implies. And there are people who aren't disturbed by it. But okay, here's the no, thing. The I reason they're not disturbed know. by it. They would be disturbed by it if it were the Republican Party doing that. Right. So. But the, the reason they're not disturbed by it is because we've got a lot of people that in their own souls are totalitarians themselves. And in particular that want totalitarian type leaders to destroy the opposition party, which yeah. is us, whether it's conservatives, libertarians, or just garden variety Republicans. And they don't really care that much about the imposition on their liberty, whether it's because they think that they've made enough money that, that they're safe from what's going on, or they're so poor that they feel like they've got nothing to lose and only something to gain. Um, but, I think that there are people that it's not that they don't see the totalitarian nature. It's that they want it. And they think that it's going to be used to achieve a goal that they want, which is destruction yeah. of us. Right. I think you're right. But that comes back to something I wanted to say a little earlier when we were talking about um, the gyms and this kind of highlights something that, before even before the gyms it, i'm just going to kind of say it and you can we can discuss it but this sort of covid thing putting crony capitalism sort of on steroids crony capitalism a characteristic being 
big government in collusion with big business. And, you know, what has happened in all of these really um, extreme rules by these governors really is an enhancement of that collusion between the politicians and the big business and these draconian rules making it so hard for the little guys, the little businesses, they can't meet with these rules and regulations. This seems to me like big government crony capitalism 101. Well, and they're getting yeah. a, a disease, a, a, a pandemic, a reason to fear the public into accepting it. Oh gosh, yes, of course you have to make these horrible rules that will kill all our small businesses and grow the big businesses. Of course you have to do that. Of course you have to do that. Well, I think part of the change to the Democratic Party is something that Bill Clinton effected. And, and I, I don't think that Bill Clinton realized necessarily what he was doing, but uh, Bill Clinton understood that he needed to put business on the side of the Democratic Party. And he was very successful in doing that. Um, when you say crony capitalism, um, I'm not I mean, I know what you mean by that, but I, to me, I see it almost a little bit differently. I wouldn't use that term for a variety of reasons. I see it as the Democrats and the left generally have finally figured out how they can implement their totalitarian dream, and that's through private entities, corrupting private, big private entities, you know, having you know, these public-private partnerships, allowing the businesses basically to be the senior partner and to have the government agents be the silent partner that are whispering in the ear of what needs to be done. You know, hey, Mark Zuckerberg, who do you need to cancel? Hey, YouTube, who do you need to cancel? Hey, Walmart, you need to put masks in place. Um, you know, all these, all these rules, they're being implemented through businesses. And, you know, coming back to one of the themes of our show, uh, libertarians, for the most part, are sort of, if not cheering that on in the name of, well, they're private entities, they can do whatever they want. At most, the libertarians will say, well, there's nothing we can do. It may or may not be bad, but there's nothing we can do. And the conservatives, on the other hand, I think almost uniformly say that this is something bad and they haven't figured out exactly what and how to, to deal with it. Uh, but that's sort of the thought process that's going on right now. And I think that's a big divide between libertarians and conservatives today. Conservatives are clearly on the side of something needs to be done. We aren't sure quite yet what, whether it's antitrust action or some, uh, some other legislative, some other legislation or, or, enforcing civil rights laws against the left. Conservatives are sort of split. They haven't come up, they haven't settled on a strategy or a set of strategies. Um, but I think conservatives do think that there's something wrong with that public-private partnership that Bill Clinton really, I don't want to say he invented it, but he really perfected it for the Democrat Party. And the Democrats have, they have controlled corporate boardrooms for the last 30 years now. And, you know, we have these businesses that are, that are the ones, you know, we had a show a couple weeks ago on big tech censorship. And it's these private companies that are implementing some of these, some of the worst, most draconian aspects of this totalitarian future that's, that's being accelerated to us. And, you know, we need to figure out, well, what can we do? How do we stop this? The constitution puts limits on government. It doesn't put limits on private individuals. 
for the most part. I mean, other than slavery and a few other things. And what we need to figure out is, okay, the Democrats have figured out that they're not going to pass gun control through the through the House and Senate, but they can get dicks to stop selling guns and they can get MasterCard to stop processing gun transactions. And that's a much more effective way to try and impose the exact same policy. And our side needs to figure out how to deal with that. Um, and when I say our side, you know, to me, the libertarians are, are, are missing the boat. They're, 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 they're not helping. If anything, they're, except they're helping the, the other side or they're doing nothing or saying we need to do nothing. The conservatives are the ones that are trying to figure out what in the world can we do to stop this? So I, kind, I kind of agree and I kind of disagree, um, luckily, or we'd be boring. Yeah. I don't know that this is all Democrats. I think it's the ruling class versus the regular people. I did not read the book, I believe, was titled The Ruling Class, but I think that's what it's about. And quite simply, if I have a choice, I'm throwing this big cocktail party in my fancy Washington condo tonight, and I have to invite 40,000 small business owners over to influence, or I can invite just one guy who owns Walmart. I'm inviting one guy, and I like that better. And like you said, with Dix or with MasterCard, there's only one person I have to lobby and there's only one person I have to be lobbied by. And I think almost the whole ruling class is much happier with that. So that, that's how I look at crony capitalism is we're all happy with that result. We're definitely not happy with the liberty of anybody starting a business and you know, being able to be equal to everybody else. I, where I disagree with you on the libertarian part is the libertarians are upset, I think, by all that led up to this, government's just too darn big. And we don't want government involved in anything. And it's government that constantly tips the scales. So whether things like, um, you know, minimum wage would tip the scales towards the big guys who can afford minimum wage more than the small guys, or many other rules, like Jody brought up again with the gym, et cetera. So government tips the scales because they're into absolutely everything, whether the flow of toilets and washing machines, et cetera. So libertarians want no government involvement in 99% of this stuff, so we wouldn't even have to have the argument. So I don't think it's necessarily a Democrat thing. I think it's unfortunately a big government thing. So what's the, uh, the quote by going, you know, uh, Steve, to lobbying, you know, when you're in a legislator and you got to lobby one person versus 40,000 people, consider that P.J. O'Rourke uh, quote where he said, when buying and selling are controlled by legislators. The first things to be bought and sold are legislators. So you gotta get that component out if you're gonna fix the problem. And how do we do that? I, I can't imagine how you do it, but they shouldn't be factoring. Well, I'd rather just cater to one big business than 40,000 little businesses. They shouldn't be in the business of controlling business so much. Right. But again, if I only have to suck up to one Walmart executive to get millions for my campaign, that, that's just a lot more convenient. It a tiny bit segues into the, the other story I was going to discuss, because as a, more of a libertarian, I have issues. It says the CDC directs halt to renter evictions to prevent virus spreads. And it talks about how local and state governments have put moratoriums on evictions um, because of COVID. And now, again, the federal government is issuing directives through the CDC. I have a lot of issues with any government getting involved in private contracts. And for sure, the federal government 
And how in the heck did that become the mandate of the CDC, which as far as I'm concerned, is totally unconstitutional to begin with. It's none of anybody's business. So my understanding of a private contract is I rent my apartment to Jody. If Jody can't pay because of COVID, Jody comes to me and we deal with it. And it's none of the government's business. Even though, yes, I live in New York City where this is a disaster. It's a disaster for tenants. It's a disaster for landlords. But what, what right does the government have to get involved in that? Well, I think that with the housing situation, the, the governments are getting involved, at least the federal government is getting involved because there's public housing for one, and that's their, that's their camel's nose under the tent. Um, but there's also other government dollars that are going into these uh, uh, public-private private partnerships uh, and housing in general the government money is the is again the camel's nose under the tent and even though you have private contracts you have government money or gov some kind of government guarantees or so, there's there's some prior government issue uh uh directive in place and that's that's sort of justifying what's going on yeah, in this um, article i actually didn't see anything about public private so i i can't say i know for sure Apparently, the criteria is you have to make less than $198,000 as a couple. So that doesn't sound like public housing money. So I don't know. No, that doesn't. That doesn't. If this is only affecting public housing or if it's affecting everybody, and again, by what power, by what right. Now, maybe I'm naive, but to me, the market fixes everything. I happen to be planning to evict Jody from my totally ridiculously overexpensive apartment that she runs for me. But guess what I'm going to find out? Jody at least has been paying me 500 out of the 10,000 she owes me every month. No one's going to give me 200 because no one has the money. And I'm going to be out there begging to rent it for 100. So to me, the free market is the only thing that has a prayer at solving it. I'm not going to kick you out if I can't get any rent. I mean, I, I'm not trying to justify further government regulations, but how can you talk about a free market in the context of the government shutting down the economy and preventing anyone from going to work. I mean, good point. There, there, there is no free market right now. Right. But I don't know that they're trying to fix the mess they're making. Like they say, government's the problem. No the solution. Right. They're not trying to fix it. They're trying to acquire more power for themselves. Okay. And, and does anybody have a clue where they get this power from? Assuming it's not these, quote, you know, public housings and public-private partnerships. And wasn't there something about private contracts in the Constitution? Right. It's Article 1, Section 9, that there's a, the impairment of contracts clause. Oh, then forget about it. I saw that they, they took that one out. They said that was a misprint. Okay. As long <laughs> as it doesn't blot. appear anywhere else. It's an ink blot. In ink, in ink, it just, it's very, very disturbing how they just keep accruing more and more power over almost anything. And like kind of what you said before, Ed, whether it's because we're numb or we're paralyzed or we're overwhelmed, no one is even like saying, wait a minute, how can you do this? Well, I just, you know, thanks to the nudgings of Ed, I just read The Fountainhead. And, you know, not that we didn't already know this, but you, all you have to do is appeal to people's... Um, emotional sense of oh how sweet you're taking care of others it's in the name of charity and people will oh yeah you shouldn't allow people to evict people that's not very nice 
and then you turn the landlords into the evil greedy people and you're done, you win. They can get the power to do it because it's in the name of being nice. And I'm not suggesting it's, look, I don't want people evicted. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying, but um, usurping power in this way, again, I, I don't think this is a solution when I do want to find out how do we protect people from evictions as much as possible, but this way, absolutely not. I'm a landlord, actually. I'm actually a landlord. Well, and look, so I'm, I'm, too, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Jody, no, I, I just want to mention it was you evicting me. I was trying to be kind. No, I, you know, when this started, first of all, again, I'm a landlord, and my, I'm a landlord on a, for a property in Michigan, but it's not easy to evict people anyway, first of all. Second of all, you know, I got very lucky. My tenants were never unable to pay, but I did reach out to them very early on. And I said, look, if you have issues paying your rent, if somebody loses jobs, please reach out to me. I'll do everything I can to work with you. They were good tenants um, and luckily it worked out, but I had that stress of, oh my gosh, what if this income stops coming in? Cause my husband's income dropped. I get it. I get it from both sides. And so it's not a one-sided argument. And certainly the government tends to make it a one-sided argument. No, 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 you can't evict people. It's like, well, there's more to the story. Mine, I'm very lucky. There are some people who, they wouldn't be able to pay their mortgage if the people don't pay their rent. And so it's not this one-sided, the tenants are evil, like the government right, would well, out to be. Yeah, I mean, I hear everything you're saying. And I mean, to me, the solution is to open up the economy, but- if we're going to have lockdowns, right, and the lockdowns are affecting, I mean, I'm just, I don't know, I don't know if it's 40% or 60% or 80% or, I mean, the lockdowns are affecting a gigantic portion of the economy. And they are basically, even though it's no longer a shelter in place, it's, it's in fact, it, in fact, it's a shelter in place. They're trying to preserve the status quo. It's, it's almost impossible to work. Schools are not being open. It's hard, it's hard to work at home when you have your your child that's, you know, got to be on the computer and, and uh, has to be overseen and you have to make lunch for them and everything else. Um, when, when they're calling a, an, an effective timeout on some significant portion of the economy, whether it's, like I said, 30, 40, 70%, I don't know. I think it's almost inevitable that, that the people that, ha that, that where there isn't a timeout are going to feel like, are, are going to be perceived as getting a, an, un, an undue benefit. You know, I mean, you know, if, if a tenant is not able to, to go to work because of a government order, is it really unreasonable for that tenant to look to that same government that prevented him from going to work and say, well, prevent my landlord from kicking me out? I, I mean, I think they're both wrong, but, you know, you were talking about hypocrisy and consistency earlier. I don't think that that's inconsistent at all. Okay, so, um, Ed, Ed, what I'm going to argue is I'm arguing they have no such power. So I'm going to make the argument that I've made about abortion. I've made it about gun control, maybe not on this show. If this is an issue that bothers so many people, then with email and the Internet, I don't think it takes more than a couple hours to get a constitutional amendment drafted that says in a case of a national pandemic where blah, 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 blah is true, we give the federal government the power to block evictions. And you can send that around Congress in several seconds. And if there's such a need, let's give them the power. But you can't just but make the, the power out of thin air. 
I, I mean, the, I mean, I have to see what the what the what the moratorium is that you're that you're specifically referring to. But I don't believe most of the moratoriums on evictions are coming from the federal government. I think most of them are coming from the state and local governments and the state and local governments are not so bound as the federal okay, government. And, and if you notice, that's why I brought up this article and none of the others, because you're right. State governments is a much harder um, argument for me to make, but this is clearly a federal government thing and that's where it really ticks me off. So again, you know, we can look into it more, but I'm just saying all the time, where do they have this power? You know, I'm always saying with abortion, if truly this whole country is pro-abortion, then let's do a constitutional amendment. It would not take long. If it's something we all agree on, the way communications is, it's not a very difficult thing to do. If everybody believes that reasonable gun um, control is a good idea, we could get a constitutional amendment in a couple of hours. The point is we don't agree, and people are just taking the power for themselves, which is another story we may, may, we may or may not get to. I'm sorry, Jody. I was going to say, we're not all going to agree what is reasonable gun control. Right. But the point is, they, you know, the Democrats are always trying to spin things as if yes. you know, everybody agrees. Well, if everybody agreed, let's do it the right way. The point is, we don't agree. And that's the way we were set up as a republic. And when we don't agree, the default isn't, unfortunately, like it is today, executive orders. So I agree it's well, hard to, to be evicted. But We were set up as a republic and we were set up as a as a, uh, you know, as a federation where states and localities were going to have the, the power to enact different and inconsistent policies. So, you know, as much as I'm for gun rights, I'm not really convinced that, that gun control laws enacted by a city or a, or a state violate any constitutional provision uh, unless, unless Congress wants to act pursuant to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment um, to me, that's the perfect example of some states are going to have gun control, some states are not. Some cities might have it. And, but people on our side of the aisle, the conservatives and libertarians, they want to have a, a blanket, you know, uh, you know, right to carry all across the country. And while I actually agree with that policy and think that would be a good policy, I'm not sure that that, I, I don't think that that's what the Constitution envisions either. Wait a minute, what does it? If that's not what the 14th Amendment says, then what does it say? If that's not what the, I think the 14th Amendment says that if, a, if Congress looks at a, at a state or local law that violates someone's rights or that Congress believes is violating someone's civil rights, Congress has the power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to say that abortion restriction or that gun control restriction or that gay marriage restriction is is uh, is a cival rights violation, and under Article uh, Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment, we are we are saying that that can't be done, and uh, the Attorney General has the power to enforce that amendment with and this civil rights law through criminal prosecution and otherwise. That's what I that's I, that's what I think the proper way to approach the problem is. Okay, let's see. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, blah, blah, blah. So that doesn't automatically extend the Bill of Rights, you're saying? I'm saying that it's up to Congress to decide whether a particular state law violates the, 
rights and privileges of the citizens of its states. Okay. All I'm seeing in the amendment is it's up to Congress to enforce it. But in my reading of the 14th Amendment is that no state can take away any right we have. And clearly the Second Amendment is a right we have, just like we have the right to anything else. So Well, if you're going to have private individuals have the freedom to sue states and localities under that provision, then you're, by definition, you're going to have judges rather than legislators decide whether a law violates the Constitution and violates people's civil rights. You're going to get okay. things just like Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where you have the Supreme Court saying that abortion restrictions can't place an undue burden, whatever that is, on a woman's right to an abortion. Um, that, to me, is something that should come from Congress, not from, from a judge. That, and, and as long as you're going to have private individuals suing in court to determine whether or not some state law or local law violates their civil rights, you've necessarily put it in the hands of judges. That's where that's coming from. Okay, so clearly when it comes to the um, specifically enumerated rights in the Constitution, like abortion, clearly the federal government is very willing to step in through the courts all the time and enforce those rights. It seems to be only the uh, penumbra and emanation rights like guns that we're having trouble getting the judges to enforce things. Because the story I was talking about is in Washington state, um, they just help, upheld their quote, voter approved gun control laws, raising the age for semi-automatics to 21 from 18. Um, again, I, I thought adulthood in everything in America was 18. And I'm not quite sure. Now I did not look at the Washington state constitution, so I won't claim I have. My understanding is a lot of state constitutions grant us quite a bit of freedom anyway. But the point is, are we, what are we? Either the federal government can enforce all of our rights, whether it's gun rights, abortion rights, or even our rights to life, liberty, and property, as in Kenosha and all these other places that are being burned to the ground, or they can't. And for some reason, the rule seems to be they can on the side of one half of the country, and they can't on the side of the other half of the country. I don't think that's what anyone's saying. I mean, I think the Democrats are probably saying that, but that's certainly not what reality. I mean. It's the reality. What? It's the reality. I don't think the federal government is enforcing any of those rights. Oh, they're definitely enforcing abortion rights. They overturn abortion um, laws every other day. Any state that passes anything restricting abortion, you can get a judge the next day to- uh, Right, validate. like I said, that's because Congress has abdicated its Section 5 authority under the 14th Amendment and left it to private citizens. And if private citizens file a lawsuit, who is going to decide whether or not a particular law violates the citizens' rights. Some judge. If you don't like that, then you got to have Congress step up and say, we're going to make the decision under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. Congress is the one that refuses to do it. So that's why, that's why the judges are the ones who are making those decisions. All right, Ed, excuse my ignorance. Can you, how does that, because I kind of always thought the Supreme Court or the courts, the court system itself was sort of the arbiter of who is and who is not upholding individual rights. How does, how does it become the first Congress's job first? I mean, they can make laws, right? But it's up to the judges to assure that they're being upheld. 
So how does that work? And your Congress you is the one. Congress is the one that has power under the Fourteenth Amendment to say whether a state is violating citizen, its citizens' rights. That's the whole purpose of the Fourteenth Amendment. It, the purpose of the Fourteenth Amendment was that prior to the Civil War, the federal government had no jurisdiction and no authority to outlaw state violations of rights. How That's does that why we pra practically, though? Like, so are they to, the, is Congress supposed to be engaging in every one of these little state-by-state -state battles between an individual and their state government? Is Congress supposed to be litigating all of these from a legislative standpoint always? Not, I don't think necessarily, I mean, Congress wouldn't litigate it, but if the issue is big enough, I think it's up to Congress to pass legislation and pass a Civil Rights Act that says state laws uh, uh, restricting abortion are, are not permitted and they violate the 14th Amendment. And rather than having a judge decide whether those laws deter violate the 14th Amendment, I think it's up to Congress to decide that. And it's up to Congress to make those laws and to empower the Justice Department to file those lawsuits and move to strike, whether it's an abortion law or a gun control law or any other law. Um, that's, that's, that's my take on it. And I think that's really, I think that Congress's failure to act pursuant to that authority is why judges have been allowed to usurp that power. I mean, they're not really usurping it. it it's a vacuum. There's nobody, somebody's got to enforce the 14th Amendment. And if Congress won't do it, then it's the only other branch that can is, is, the, uh, is the courts. All right. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at the, um, wow. Looking at the Washington State Constitution, section 24, the right of the individual citizen to bear arms in defense of himself or the state shall not be impaired but nothing in this section shall be construed as authorizing individuals or corporations to organize, maintain, or employ an armed body of men. So this is pretty clear, okay? The right of individual to bear arms in defense of, him state, uh, in defense of himself or the state shall not be impaired. And interestingly enough, in the beginning of their constitution, section two, article one, the constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. So, Again, even forgetting the federal constitution, I don't understand how we can have judges just wiping out clear statements in, in the state constitution. I mean, I don't have an answer for that other than, you know, some dishonesty on the part of the, the particular judge that's making the ruling, but I'd have to see the case and see the opinion and see the reasoning. Well, like we've said before, you know, recourse to the courts is kind of hollow because the courts do whatever the heck they want to do. And we really don't have much we can do once a court says something. And Congress, I don't know if they do anything that's in any way um, constructive whatsoever anymore. I wish they'd stop doing so much. Right, but they don't seem to do anything to fix anything. You know, I'm here from the, the government, I'm here to help, but I don't see them helping anything and definitely, again, other than abortion rights, I don't know that they ever stick up for people's rights. Well, I mean, I just thought of an example in my head. I mean, Congress didn't act pursuant to the 14th Amendment when uh, I'm thinking of the Defense of Marriage Act, which Congress, as I recall, they passed it 
not under the 14th Amendment, but as part of the uh, full faith and credit clause. But that was that's to me is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I think that even though they, they didn't base it on the 14th Amendment, Congress in that instance acted and said marriage between one man and one woman is not a violation of the Constitution, or I forget exactly how it was worded. Um, the fact that the courts ultimately struck it down, that was an usur usurpation of power by the courts. Um, and that was an instance where, if anything, the, the elected branches should have disregarded the court's ruling on that because that court ruling was completely illegitimate. The Defense of Marriage Act was completely consistent with the Constitution. It just, as I recall, it was just not, uh, the, the, the federal government didn't invoke Section 5 of the 14th Amendment as, as its justification for it. But that, to me, is exactly how it's supposed to work, other than, you know, other than the elected branches stood down when the Supreme Court said, no go. Okay. And we're running out of time, but how do you differentiate between making marriage law uniform across the country and reciprocity when it comes to Second Amendment rights? Um, how do you figure that I'm making, that I'm saying marriage law should be uniform across the country? Now, in other words, if they can do a Defense of Marriage Act, which is in, in essence making marriage uniform across the country, correct? I don't think it did. All it was saying is that a state does not have, that if a state doesn't recognize gay marriage, it doesn't have to recognize gay marriage performed in a different state where gay marriage is accepted. Okay, so, so that, that empowered the state more rather than empowering the feds more. Um, I'm not, I don't think I'm making that determination one way or the other. I'm just, uh, and I don't think it was making marriage law uniform. It was just saying it is not a, a civil rights violation for the state of, you know, whatever state, uh, I guess, you know, let's use Kentucky, which was, no, I don't remember which, which case it was that struck down Defensive Marriage Act. But, um, you know, if some state said marriage is between one man, one woman, and a, a gay couple got married in, in New Jersey or California or Massachusetts or one of these states that recognized it, you had the right as a, as a gay couple to go to one of those states and get married there. You just didn't have the right. I mean, the, one, the people who were trying to make it uniform were the gay marriage people saying it had to be that case that way everywhere. And, and to me, so I don't think that, I, that, that the Defense of Marriage Act was make, trying to make marriage uniform. I think it was respecting state sovereignty and state power to define marriage on their own. And it's the advocates of gay marriage that said, no, it's got to be gay marriage all across the country. And I understand, I understand the, the reasoning behind it because they want to be able to travel and they want to move. And, but, you know, that's, you know, I want to be able to go to Chicago and, and have, a, have a gun, but I can't. Right. I mean, it's up to, you know, if Congress says that's OK, I think that 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 loss, that that, that local law is going to should stand. I mean, even it's if I disagree with it, and I do so disagree to flip with the, it. To flip the question, if the Supreme Court overruled DOMA and took away individual states' powers to decide what type of marriage they accept, then isn't it inconsistent to not do the same thing with being able to carry guns across state lines with a license? Isn't what inconsistent? 
Okay. That the court right the now, court if you have a, you have a license to carry in New Hampshire, but if you drive through New York, you can go to jail. Yep. Okay. So by the same logic that the court said one state can't refuse to accept a marriage under another state's laws, under that same logic, the court should say a state can't reject a license to carry, even stipulating that you need a license to carry, which is a different issue. Um, it could do that using the same logic, but it would be the same error, in my opinion. I, in my view, as a federalist, I think that different localities can have different rules and it's up to, it's up to each individual to decide which locality they want to live in and, and, and visit and do business in. That's what, I, that's what I think. I mean, separate apart from my underlying view that owning guns should be, is a good thing. Um, you know, gay, gay couples, if they don't get, I don't know that it should be called, they should have, uh, a, an institution that's at least fully equivalent to mar marriage. But again, I think that's something that's up to the individual states in our federal system. It's not something that the federal government is supposed to impose on all of them. And I think that DOMA was seeking to, to respect federalism. I'm not sure that a nationwide right to carry, as President Trump has suggested, in which, while it warms my heart with the thought the thought of being able to, you know, get a gun and carry it wherever I were to go, uh, I don't think that that is consistent with our federal system. I don't think it's consistent with federalism. All right, I think we can have this argument a whole other show because it's kind of fascinating and partly you're educating us and then based on what you educate us, we get to continue arguing with you because we are gonna nominate you for Supreme Court justice sooner or later and you realize that Liberty Block is being listened to by all the nominating commissions, the ABA, FedSoc, et cetera. So I just want to put you on notice. Joe, do you want a final comment? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a perfect time to say what I want to say over the last week. You know, we discussed libertarianism, conservatism, you know, and kind of banter that back and forth. And I've been sort of trying to figure out where I am. I, and I, I, I think I've come to a little more of a conclusion in the last week. And, you know, I, I, I run in my heart of hearts libertarian philosophically because I really do want to each their own. I, I want to be free to live my life the way I want. And I want to preserve the freedom of others to live their life the, the way they want. Obviously, unviolently and, you know, uh, not destructive to others. But um, then sort of uh, reality hits. And one of the things I've learned is while I have a desire to be free to live my life in accordance with my own priorities and desires, um, there's a boatload of people who have no desire to leave anyone free to live out their own worldview, the left. They truly want to usurp power. They're not interested in being free to live their lives. They're interested in, um, being free to force you to live the way they want you to live. So yep. I came across this little quote, and this is why in my heart, I'm libertarian philosophically, but I have discovered that when it comes to government and policy, I am a Republican and conservative. Um, let me just say this quote that I saw that just totally helped me highlight this. It's, 
I used to be a libertarian. I believed in the idea of granting the left the freedom to do whatever they want, so long as they left me alone. But then I realized they would never leave me alone and would never extend to me the same freedoms I had extended to them. That, sadly, is the world we live in, and libertarianism cannot exist when that is so not just pervasive and ubiquitous, but powerful right now in a place of power right now. That's it. Not only that, Jody, I, I think that's an excellent point in summation. The only thing I'll add is that you have to remember that according to the libertarian philosophy, the libertarians believe in, in non-initiation of force, not using, not using force. And it, it, it gives all the initiative, the libertarian philosophy winds up giving all of the initiative to the totalitarians. They're, the totalitarians are the ones who are always acting and the libertarians, if they do anything at all, are reacting. And that's part of the reason we're in the predicament that we're in because too much libertarian philosophy runs through our side on the right. And, you know, we, we haven't figured out that they'll never respect our rights. And it's not that we want to rule over them. It's that it's a kill or be killed situation with them. And they, you know, they just, they don't respect rights and they're, they're, sort of outside the, the contemplation of what our system was set up in the first place. Um, I gave you the, you know, I used the John Adams quote very early in our podcast, you know, that our constitution was designed for religious and moral people and it would be of no use to any other. Um, I think in the, in the situation that we're finding ourselves today, uh, the, the libertarian mindset seeds and surrenders all initiative to the bad guys. And, you know, you're, you're, a, you're, you're gonna get killed in any kind of street fight where you let the other guy take the first shot. And that's really where we are. And we keep getting pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. And we keep walking back to the same situations thinking, well, we better not hit first. We can only hit in response. And anyone who's been involved in a street fight, anyone who's grown up, you know, in a big city and, and, and had to fight his way through as I have, I know if you don't, if you're not willing to throw the first punch, you're going to lose. And I can tell you that too many times in my life, I didn't throw the first punch and I have got, and I have lost street fights and it's not fun. And uh, you know, it's not any more fun politically, but politically that's what's happening right now. And we need to take the initiative and not be afraid to take the initiative and not be afraid to take the fight to the bad guys because they are bad guys. Okay. I'm going to agree not to debate on the condition that Jody agrees to put that quote up on, uh, on Liberty Black on Facebook. I'm going to thank Ed and Jody once again for a great show and remind listeners that will be up on both SoundCloud and iTunes, hopefully within the next couple of hours. And we hope to see you again next week. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much, Jody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.